Hey friends, thanks for tuning in to Calling Water. I'm Linda, and if you're joining us for the first time, what we do on this podcast is examine a passage of scripture to discover both what it means and what it might call us to do about it. In today's episode, The Greatness of God, we're looking at the story in Luke chapter 9 of what happened after the transfiguration of Jesus and how this story speaks to our own struggles with faithlessness. Let's get started. So the event that occurs in Luke chapter 9 verses 37 through 43 that we're looking at today comes immediately after the transfiguration of Jesus that we looked at in a previous episode. But to recap real quick, Jesus took three of his disciples, namely Peter, James, and John, up a mountain with him to pray. And there he was transfigured, his face and clothes became dazzlingly white, the prophets Moses and Elijah appeared by his side, and God's voice was heard saying, this is my son whom I love, listen to him. And now upon seeing all of this, Peter had wanted to build shelters and stay on that mountain, but alas, the work that Jesus came to do on this earth wasn't simply to bask in his divinity. It was to mingle with humanity and to become our salvation. But while Jesus and the three disciples were on their mountain retreat of sorts, things were happening down below. As soon as they come down from the mountain, the text tells us Jesus is met by a frantic father who calls out to him from the crowd saying in verses 38 through 40, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son for he is my only child. A spirit seizes him and he suddenly screams. It throws him into convulsion so that he foams at the mouth. It scarcely ever leaves him and is destroying him. I begged your disciples to drive it out, but they could not. Okay, so you know how your parents would always tell you, just wait until you have kids of your own? And if you're anything like me, you've heard and dismissed this little parental cliche countless times. But I have to tell you, this thing is real as much as it pains me to admit it, because there are certain emotions and heartaches that are simply foreign to you until you are a parent yourself. I remember one time my husband and I were at the grocery store, and this was before kids, and we saw a dad carrying his daughter who, by our estimation, was no younger than seven or eight. And I thought to myself, wow, she is much too old and much too big to need to be carried like that. That man is completely spoiling his daughter. I know, it was so judgy, you guys. It was not a shining moment for me. Especially now that my oldest is turning eight very soon. And honestly, I would carry that kid every day if I could because they just grow up so alarmingly fast. So this is one of those passages that before kids, I didn't really linger on too much, but now it lends a whole new emotional experience for me, which I hope also resonates with you too. So what we can infer from what the text tells us is that this father was completely out of options. 
and although the Bible passage doesn't exactly say, it would be safe to assume that his son was at least in his teens because when we look at Mark's version of the story, the father tells Jesus that his son has had this condition since he was a child. So this means it wasn't something that happened all of a sudden and he had just brought his son in an emergency. This was something he's been living with for a long time. And he tells Jesus that this spirit scarcely ever leaves him. So his son had a chronic illness. Now I need us to wrap our minds around this so we can have more empathy for this passage because this father was caring for a son whose mental and physical health was worsening on the daily for years. I mean, it's tough enough watching your kids battle a cold for even a week, but to watch your only child struggling with such a debilitating disease for that long, there is no way this father was anywhere near okay. Especially because back in the day, they didn't know that it was a disease. They probably thought he was crazy. So we can assume that this father's strength and resources were all depleted. He was probably being shunned and judged by his community. And the worst of it was that there was no answer for his only child. Until now, that is. The man says that he begged his disciples, that's Jesus' disciples, to help, but they couldn't do it. So we have to ask, why did he think that the disciples could do it in the first place. If we go back to the beginning of Luke chapter 9, we find this in verses 1 through 2. When Jesus had called the twelve together, he gave them power and authority to drive out all demons and to cure diseases, and he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. Jesus actually commissioned them to do the kind of work that he's been doing with them all along. And what's more is that verse 6 tells us, So they set out and went from village to village, proclaiming the good news and healing people everywhere. They were, in fact, successful. People knew that Jesus and his merry band of followers were able to perform miracles by the power of God. So then, why couldn't they do it this time? Now, if we go and look at the same account in Mark chapter 9, we find out that an argument had broken out between the disciples and the teachers of the law. Presumably, the man had brought his son to the disciples, and they and the teachers of the law, who happened to be there, disagreed about the methods on how to get rid of the evil spirit plaguing the boy. Now, we don't know the details of that conversation, but the end result is that whatever the teachers of the law said, most likely filled with cynicism and doubt, it was enough to quell the confidence the disciples had, and they couldn't truly help this man, even though Jesus had given them the authority, and even though that they had already exercised this authority before. The man, upon seeing Jesus, says this to him in Mark chapter 9, verse 22. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can do anything, he says. There's just a general lack of faith everywhere at this point. 
The teachers of the law had no faith the disciples could heal the boy. The disciples themselves lost faith in their ability. And the man seems to have had very little faith that anything could be done at this point because this had been his reality for so long. They were so reliant on their abilities that they forgot to look to the one who gives them these abilities. So when the father says, if you can do anything, Jesus responds in verse 23, if you can, everything is possible for one who believes. Now, this verse is one that we use a lot to encourage people. Anything is possible if you just believe. There can be miracles when you believe, as that one Prince of Egypt song goes. We can do anything as long as we have faith. But this general sentiment, though inspirational, is not what Jesus is saying here. He's not saying you can do anything as long as you believe. He's saying he can do anything as long as you believe. Jesus invites the boy's father to let go of his reservations and fully entrust the outcome to Jesus. At that, in verse 24, the boy's father says, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. Somehow, impossibly, this man's faith in Jesus lived in this liminal space between belief and unbelief. He believed Jesus could do anything, but wasn't sure that anything included healing his son. Now, isn't this something that we're all too familiar with? We proclaim Jesus as our Savior. We believe in his death and resurrection. We profess our faith in his return and our eternal home in heaven. And yet, we doubt his ability or availability to help us in our times of need. But hear the words of Jesus again. Everything is possible for one who believes. Don't mistake this for saying that Jesus will do anything and everything to magic you out of your troubles as long as you believe, but simply that Jesus himself has no limitations. And that is what we need to believe, that he is able, and if it is his will, he can and will do it. But if we return to our original text in Luke chapter 9, before Jesus attends to the boy, he says this in verse 41. You unbelieving and perverse generation, how long shall I stay with you and put up with you? In this one sentence, he addresses everyone there as an unbelieving and perverse generation. It does feel a bit harsh, but remember, Jesus wasn't asking them to put their faith in something so unreasonably abstract. He had shown them what he can do. He had shown them what they can do. And more importantly, he had shown them what God can do. And yet they all remained, including his disciples, they all remained willfully and woefully ignorant. Jesus knew that all too soon he would be crucified. He knew that soon after his resurrection, he would return to heaven. And if his disciples and all the people were doubting God's power and presence while Jesus was with them, how much more difficult it would be once he's no longer on this earth with them. 
And here and now in 2022, we can attest to indeed how difficult it is because we too are an unbelieving and perverse generation. But Jesus did not allow their unbelief to stop him from showing compassion and mercy, and nor does it stop him today. He tells the father to bring the boy to him, and while the people might have looked on in mild interest, the spirit realm was on the fritz because they knew exactly what was about to go down. Verses 42 through 43 tell us, Even while the boy was coming, the demon threw him to the ground in a convulsion. But Jesus rebuked the impure spirit, healed the boy, and gave him back to his father. And they were all amazed at the greatness of God. Now, there are a few things I want us to walk away with from this story. And I hope that it strengthens your faith journey. And the first thing is, don't stay on your mountain. And we talked about this a little bit in the Transfiguration episode as well. But Jesus could have easily avoided this entire scene. He could have stayed on the mountain where he was acknowledged as a son of God, where there were no detractors and no distractions. But staying in that bubble, as it were, would have been counterproductive to his ministry. As he himself says later in the book of Luke, that he came to seek and to save the lost. So identify your mountain. Where does it feel comfortable and easy and safe for you? Where is a place you feel accomplished and admired even? Maybe it's a certain group of friends, your family, your work, or your church community. And you know that is a good place to be. You need that mountain to remind you of your identity and your purpose in God. But contrary to Peter's words, it is not good for us to stay there. We need to come down from the mountain and actually do something for the people who need you to do something more than just simply exist. Because that's what Jesus did for the people. I mean, that's the greatness of God, isn't it? He doesn't merely exist. He is constantly at work. So who is someone that you can help? Who is someone that needs to hear the good news of Jesus through you? Who is someone that needs encouragement or prayer? Who is someone that needs you to sit with them as they go through a difficult time in their life? Step away from your mountain, your comfort zone, and reach out. And then let God do the rest. And the second thing I want us to remember is we need to actively choose faith over methods. The disciples and the teachers of the law who were arguing about best practices and exorcism, even though they were on opposing sides, had the same fundamental problem. They were so focused on the methods rather than on the one who could bring about this miracle. The disciples lost their faith in the authority Jesus gave to them. The teachers of the law had no faith in the authority of Jesus at all. And the boy's father turned to faith as a last resort. Now, we all face these same problems with faith today. Sometimes we're like the disciples who, even after knowing and witnessing all the greatness of God in our lives, forget that same power is for us and within us. 
other times we're like the teachers of the law who don't believe in the power of God, at least not as it applies to us. And still others of us are just holding out on faith until we can amass more evidence. But to that, Jesus says, everything is possible for one who believes. And Jesus isn't asking us to have blind faith. He's inviting us to examine scripture and the hands of God at work in our lives and in the lives of those around us. He's reminding us of God's infinite love that crucified his son and sacrificed everything for the sake of all humanity, past, present, and future. And he's showing us that we too, like the boy's father in today's story, can overcome our unbelief the minute we choose to step out and believe. Everything is possible when we choose to believe in the God for whom that statement is always true. So, let's leave our mountains and choose faith in God over even tried and true methods. Let's choose compassion even for those who are struggling with faith or even outright rejecting it. Let's continue to show the powers of this world that greater is he who lives in us so that we can shine on this increasingly unbelieving and perverse generation the profound and undeniable greatness of God. Let's pray. God, so many times we say we believe in you, yet we choose not to believe you when you say you are with us, you will help us, you will heal us, you will comfort us. So instead of clinging to you, we try with our own might and leave no stone unturned in our search for solutions when all along in your hands, everything is possible. So God, help us overcome our unbelief. Help us not to be swayed by the discouraging voices. Help us to pay attention to all that you've been doing and continue to do for us. Because when we do, we will for sure find that you are everything we need and more. May we never lose sight of the greatness of you. In Jesus' name.